Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. While you're turning there, uh, I wanted to read just a couple of verses from the 23rd Psalm. I know that it's been, uh, you know, a long week uh, for uh, many of you, and a lot of energy was expended this week, a a lot of time and effort, and I wanted to offer just a couple of encouragements, as I know... You know, gathering on a Sunday morning is not uh, easy in the flesh. It's uh, It can be taxing, and even having gone through the difficulty of gathering together, uh, being uh, mentally prepared and having enough endurance to, to do well in this time is, is a challenge uh, as well, and that speaks to our weakness as human beings, unfortunately, uh, but it is true. And uh, I want you to know it's true for me, too. Um, there are some Sundays when I feel energized and, and ready to worship and, and ready to go, and some Sundays when I'm very tired and I'm just, or distracted and my mind is on other things. But I am encouraged by the 23rd Psalm, and I just want to read uh, the first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, um, which I think speaks to God's uh, ability to provide for my needs. Um, I often think about my wants or my feelings or how I'm, you know, how I'm doing in the day-to-day, but the Lord will provide for my needs. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Um, it doesn't always feel in life like we are uh, lying down in green pastures. Sometimes it feels like we are being uh, pushed to our limits or going through a difficult time period, but when it is necessary, because you know sometimes we have to do more than just lie down in green pastures, in, in life. Uh, sometimes we have to, as verse 4 will go on to say, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But when it is necessary and when it is good for us to do so, God knows how to give peace to his people and he knows how to uh, put them down peacefully to rest and, and to bless us tremendously. I know I've experienced the blessings of God that way. And we should remember that he knows what he's doing as our shepherd. He knows when it's time to rest and he knows when we must endure uh, great evil. Um, And then finally, verse 3, and this is what drew me to the passage just as a refresher this morning, he restores my soul. Uh, No one else can do that. Um, No one else can do that. As much as I love my wife, she can't restore my soul. As much as I love my children or take pleasure in the things that I do, only God can uh, reach inside of who I am as a person and restore me to uh, a right understanding of uh, myself and a right understanding of the Lord. Uh, only God can do that, and he, and he does. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Um, God has a purpose uh, with what He is doing in my life, and I may not understand that purpose at any given moment, and sometimes, certainly, we will be going places and not exactly be sure of where it is that God is leading, but in a broader sense, we know where He is leading. He is leading us in paths of righteousness, and He is doing this for His namesake. He is doing this because He will make something of Himself in our lives. He knows what He's doing. Um, He does not uh, deign to step down off of His throne in heaven and explain uh, every milestone along the way to you and I. If he did, it wouldn't be faith to follow him. If every time we were faced with confusion 
or doubt or uncertainty or difficulty or fatigue. Um, God stepped in and said, hey, look, I don't want you to worry about this. Here is exactly what I'm going to do, and here is exactly how I'm going to do it, and here is the explanation of every difficult thing. Then following God would not be an act of faith. It would be uh, like, like uh, following the, the GPS on your phone or something like that, where you knew every path and destination, and so you turned left or right. But that is not who God is. God is our leader and our shepherd. And by faith we follow him. And he is trustworthy. So I hope that is a refresher to you uh, this morning. We are in Philippians uh, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 7. And then we are going to look at verse 7. So let's read together verses 3 through 7. This is Paul again writing to the church in Philippi. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always, In every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel. And just to pause there, that's what we're focusing on at the beginning of this letter. This fellowship in the gospel. Two weeks ago, we talked about what the gospel is and the sovereignty of God working in the gospel. Um, Last week, we talked about a future perspective of this world and life and how the gospel doesn't speak to our best life now, but convicts us to look forward to look ahead, to invest in the future. Um, so it's the, it's the fellowship of the gospel that Paul has with the Philippians that he is recalling into focus here. Okay, so verse 5, you know, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. We went back and we looked at the first day. We, we understand how the church in Philippi began. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. And that's the sovereignty of God in salvation. God begins the work and God will faithfully, as a potter with the clay, be working on the believer. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And there is the future-looking, investment-minded, oriented nature of the wisdom of God. We are looking towards the return of Jesus Christ. We are looking toward the day when uh, the dead in Christ will rise, they will meet him in the air. The Lord of glory will reveal himself to the people of the earth, and he will rule, and we will rule and reign with Jesus. There is an investment characteristic to this. This is not dumb. Our faith in God is not dumb. It's dumb if, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul defending the resurrection, it's dumb if there be no resurrection from the dead. If there be no resurrection from the dead, this is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. If we are sacrificing and serving God sacrificially here on this earth, again, investing in a future, what's an investment? Sacrificing now, putting aside now for what will come, the reward that will come. If we're sacrificing and investing now for a future that never arrives then we are, of all people, most to be pitied. We're like the, the employees of Enron who never diversified and had a whole portfolio of stock in the early 2000s. We are we're like uh, the people who jump out of windows because their entire life value is tied up in a stock market that's crashing. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. 
if there be no resurrection from the dead. But, as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, but there is. <laughs> that's his certainty. That's why, and that's the, the argument he's making to the Corinthian church. We, we're not going to compromise on the belief of the resurrection of the dead because if you throw that out, we're most to be pitied, but you don't throw it out. You don't throw it out. So that's verses 1 through 6. Now verse 7. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Now, a little warning about Philippians here for those of you who are more Reggie and Steve-minded in the uh, congregation. What I mean by that is I like to pay very close attention to the sentence structure when I'm trying to do exposition. In other words, when I'm trying to prepare to preach, I pay very close attention to the sentence structure and I look for clues to line up exactly what the meaning of what's being said is. And I know Steve does too, because every time Steve preaches, I learn something about the English language I didn't know before, you know? And so Steve is paying attention to say, that's good. It's good to do that, okay? Especially if you're going to teach, because, you know, you can come to some really wrong conclusions if you're not really paying attention to it. But in this long, long, long sentence that Paul is writing, that began verses ago, verses ago, um, it's, it's, we don't get a lot of clues from the sentence structure. It's difficult to follow the sentence structure. In your English Bible, you probably see a lot of commas, right? And a whole lot of words that you use to tie two simple statements together in one sentence, Paul just keeps them coming. These words, and it's like another thought, and because of this, another thought, and in so much as another thought, and therefore another thought. So, you know, this is a tough one, I don't think so much we're supposed to read here because I have you in my heart, you know, I think all the other things. I think it's all just one statement after another and it's all just working together. In other words, if you tried to unravel the sentence to build each phrase on top of the other, that's going to be tough to do in this passage. But when he gets down to what the Philippians have done in their fellowship with him, which that's where verse 7 is, he said, I'm glad for your fellowship in the gospel. What they've done to fellowship with him in the gospel is, is beginning in earnest in verse 7. Before he gets into what they've done, he, he pauses in verse 7 to say, it's right for me to remember you always in my prayers and to remember you with joy. And It's right for me to because I have you in my heart. In other words, he's pausing before he, he acknowledges their specific contributions. He's pausing to say, I really, really, really uh, love you and care about you. Um, uh, in other words, I, the reason why I mention you, it's right for me to mention you in all my prayer, all the time. <laughs> he even goes to say, in every prayer of mine is because you are, you are truly in my heart. Now, I think that means more than just I love you with the love of God. Because I love people with the love of God, at least aspiring to love people with the love of God, who I'm not thinking of all the time. Uh, I mean, that's just, you know, human. I don't have the mind of God. You know, God's omniscient. He can know all things. And all. He, you know, he's omnipresent. God, God is not limited like me, but I'm limited. I can only have so many thoughts in my head at one time. Um, I'm not thinking of everybody all the time, but I do have a certain group and category of people who are never far from my thoughts, who are always in my heart, who I'm always, you know, my thoughts and my actions when I wake up, when I function throughout the day, they're never far from 
from my presence. And that's, you know, that's all of you. It's the people in this local body. Um, there's a love that I have for people in the local body that is more present in my life than you know, a broader love for, for, um, for everyone everywhere that I'm commanded to have in the love of God. Um, and I think that that's really what Paul is getting at. I mean, Paul worked with a lot of churches and a lot of people, but he really had a pastoral mindset to Philippi. He, he was, they were a church that their fellowship and how they were doing and how they were functioning, they were always in his heart. They were always present. And that's why you know, he's always making mention of them all the time. Now, why are they always in his heart? He's already told us it's because of their fellowship with him in the gospel. Fellowship meaning partnership, um, friendship. And we know what the gospel is. We should by now after the last couple of weeks. But then look at the character, the characteristics of their fellowship that he brings to mind in verse 7. This is where we're really going to be today. It's not going to be a, a super long sermon. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense... And in the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Now, by this, again, he mentions three things. My chains, my defense, and my confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me. Um, you could read this one of two ways. You could read it that Paul is saying, all of you in Philippi have continued to love and minister to me uh, materially. In other words, by sending support and finances, even in my chains, which we know he's a prisoner at this point in time. And in my defense, he's actually having to stand up in front of authoritative figures and defend why it is reasonable for him to believe what he believes. And it shouldn't be criminal. It should be a reasonable thing. And in confirmation of the gospel, um, which is displaying the certainty of the gospel in his life. Okay, So it could be that he is merely acknowledging that they have continued to write the checks and continued to send them along despite the situation that he's in because of the gospel. But it could also mean, and I tend to lean this direction, not that the first meaning is irrelevant or wrong because we know that the Philippians were in fact continuing to send the checks. But I also believe that the Philippians themselves were experiencing something similar. And in that way, they weren't just sending along checks to Paul, but even though separated by hundreds of miles, they're, they're experiencing a version of what Paul is experiencing. In other words, we know that the city of Philippi and the region of Macedonia was, was hostile to the Philippians just as Paul is experiencing hostility. So Paul is in chains, but they're suffering too. We know that um, they are giving a defense among their own magistrates as Paul is too. Um, there's legal question, and we saw this in Paul's visit to Philippi. There's legal question about whether or not what they believe about this God and, and this Jesus should be criminal. Matter of fact, when Paul is, is drugged uh, before the, the mob uh, for, for judgment, uh, before he and Silas are thrown into prison, do you remember what the owners of the, the slave girl whom Paul had cast the demon, I remember what they say, they worship a God and it's criminal, it's against our laws. 
So the Philippians are in the same context that, that Paul is. They're not just dealing with some suffering, but they're dealing with a defense of the criminality of this. And their lives, too, that they're living are confirmation of the power of the gospel, the effect of the gospel. So that's where I want to settle today. I want to talk about those three elements. Um, first, the, the first part, in my chains, which I would summarize with the word suffering, suffering. Um, every, everyone uh, who seeks to minister um, in someone's life by sharing the gospel, um, everyone will suffer. If you're doing that faithfully, you will suffer. It may not be chains for you, but I think chains here can be symbolic for suffering in general. Um, I want to talk about the defense of the gospel, which Paul mentions in verse 7, and also the confirmation of the gospel. And I'll, I don't want to hold any suspense over what these meanings are, so I've told you I think chains refers to suffering. I think that a defense of the gospel uh, refers to the basic uh, requirement of a Christian that they proclaim the gospel as something that is reasonable. Something that is reasonable and right. In other words... You know, Christians are not the kind of people who, when we talk about the gospel and someone says, well, that sounds unbelievable, like, yeah, well, it is kind of crazy, but that's what I believe, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not the right approach. And then finally, in the confirmation of the gospel, which I think is something that believers uh, uh, do with their living. In other words, they confirm the power of the gospel that they preach, that they proclaim to others with the lives that they live. Um, so that's what I want to settle on today. Uh, first, a little on suffering. Um, one second. On suffering. Why do we suffer? Why should the gospel require suffering? What is it about the gospel uh, that makes it a suffering thing? I mean, have you ever stopped and you ever thought about it like, um, you know, I, um, I think I should be able to sit down with someone and, you know, share with them about what I believe. I don't understand why it has to be, you know, any kind of a sacrificial or painful experience. I, that part doesn't necessarily add up. And yet, over and over again in the Scriptures, we're told by the prophets, we're told by the Lord Jesus, we're told by the disciples, the apostles, we're told that we will face suffering and persecution in this world. And the suffering and the persecution seems to be in connection with the gospel and our proclamation of the gospel. Why? Um, the biblical answer is because we have an enemy. That's why. Because we have an enemy. Um, when we share the gospel, we are taking up opposition um, against someone. We are, we are opposing someone. We have an enemy. And... It's no different than the, the Vikings who'd stand on one side of a battlefield with an axe and a shield, and on the other side of a battlefield, there was a different group of, of people with whatever they've got to defend themselves. When, when, if you want to put the imagery correctly in your mind, when you open your mouth and you share the news of Jesus Christ, that He died on the cross, um, crucified by sinners, and He paid the debt of sinners, so that God uh, can save and forgive and redeem sinners who trust in Jesus, we are taking up an opposing side. And on the other side of the battlefield is an interesting character. Um, the, 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 the person, and I'm not incorrect in using that word person, the person that is in opposition to us 
is called uh, Satan or Lucifer in the Bible. The devil in the Bible. That's how God's word refers to him. In other words, when we share the gospel and we anticipate suffering, uh, we should not anticipate suffering in the sense of our enemies who are human beings will try to tear us you know, down or silence us or make us feel bad. No. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. That's Ephesians 6, 12. We are not struggling against other human beings. Um, but against principalities, against spiritual forces and heavenly places. In other words, the opposition to us is a spiritual opposition. Um, now, the spiritual opposition um, to what we do when we share the gospel can manifest itself in very different ways. Um, Satan can stir up uh, people uh, against God's people, and that is a biblical understanding. Um, but the enemy is not the person who, you know, arrests a Christian or mocks a Christian or ridicules a, a Christian. Uh, the enemy is the spiritual forces in heavenly places behind that uh, worldly opposition to us. Um, people who are resisting the gospel and persecuting God's people are um, not to be vilified themselves. And I just want to pause there because there are, are many prominent voices in our world, culturally and politically, that get this wrong. Um, people are not to be demonized and vilified. Um, we are to love our enemies. Uh, we are to deeply care for our enemies. Jesus uh, gave his life to die for you when you were his enemy. People are not who we are wrestling against. We are trying to speak salvation to people so that they can be saved. Because the spiritual world that has a grip on them is a secular, demonic world. Um, it's masked as something different. But it is a world driven by selfishness and self-desire and pride and the pursuit of passions, the pursuit of ambitions that do not take people to a place of glorifying God. So our enemy is a spiritual enemy. In the Bible, uh, when we read the name Satan, which my mom often mistakenly calls Santa, you can wrestle with that. It's an, it, she's doing it as an accident, by the way, but she does it all the time. Um, the word Satan is not a proper name, okay? The word Satan is a descriptive title. Just like we call Jesus Lord, um, the word Satan is a descriptive title, and it means the accuser or the one who accuses. Um, so when we talk about Satan, we are talking about one who accuses others before God, who brings accusations of guilt and accusations, uh, accusations of evil against others. Um, so the word Satan, don't be confused, is not a name. Satan himself is a created being. He is a created angel. How do we know he's an angel? Well, because the Bible refers to him as 
uh, in his origin, a cherub, a cherub. So he is of a class of God's creation um, that we broadly refer to as angels. Now, angels is also something that uh, is not properly understood. Um, to be an angel means to be a messenger or a representative of God. That's what it means. Matter of fact, in, in the New Testament, sometimes pastors are called angels. Not because I'm going to sprout wings and fly around or anything like that. But pastors are called angels because they are called on to represent God before a group, a community of God's people. Okay, so to be an angel, the actual word, the language means to be a messenger or a representative of God. Why do we call these supernatural beings angels? Because they were created to glorify God and to work on His behalf in creation. Angels were created, much like human beings, to glorify God and to work in creation on His behalf. Now, in Genesis, we read about how human beings fell from that. Um, we don't get, you know, massive descriptions of what happened that there were angels who also rebelled against God. But we do have enough of a description to know that angels did rebel against God. And this angel, Lucifer, was uh, their leader, was the one who led them in rebellion. And their rebellion was a selfish rebellion. In other words, when we read about the, the rebellion of Satan that gets him kicked out of God's presence and that condemns him, that damns him. Uh, the words used to describe that rebellion are, I will exalt myself. I will, you know, I will become great. Those are the words. In other words, we have a being that was created to glorify God, to exalt God, and to represent God in creation. And the rebellion of that being is described to us as, I will exalt myself rather than God. And that mindset of self-exaltation, that's the spiritual mindset of our world too. So when I talk about we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with spiritual beings in heavenly places, that's what I mean. A lot of people, when you talk like this, they, they imagine that, oh, Christians think that, you know, the rest of the world is going in their back room and having some demonic seance or whatever. They think that we serve the devil. No, no, that's not... That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the mindset of self-exaltation and self-pursuit as opposed to the exaltation of God and the pursuit of honoring God and glorifying God. That's the mindset of the world. It's certainly not honoring God. The mindset of the world is exalt yourself and serve yourself. That is the mindset of Lucifer. That is the rebellion of Satan summarized for us in Isaiah and Ezekiel, in Ezekiel, that that is that's it, self exaltation. You could say that if before I was a Christian, my desire was to exalt myself by giving myself over to the discipline of of basketball or golf, and and I gave myself over to that discipline, or my desire was to exalt myself by enjoying worldly pleasures. Uh, as much as possible until my own heart was content with them, whether it's, you know, games or friends or relationships, girls. 
If you could say that my desire was to exalt myself by purchasing nice things that I might own them and display them and lift myself up internally with them and display my value to others with them, to upgrade my life. That's what most luxury purchases are. They're simply upgrades. We had something before, now we have something better, you know? If if you've experienced those desires, then you've experienced a mindset of self-exaltation enough to know it doesn't feel that sinister. It doesn't feel that wrong. It feels natural, and it is natural for sinners. That mindset of self-exaltation runs against the grain of what Jesus came to this earth and preached to his disciples of Look, lay your life down and serve me because this world is temporary. And what the, the riches of this world are temporary. The relationships of this world are temporary. And if my wife is the fullness, if my wife is my greatest treasure on this earth, one day either I will bury her or she will bury me and it will be over. Don't invest into that. This is the future looking part of the gospel. So this is what Jesus is preaching, but you and I live now, and we are, in our natural state, self-exalters. <laughs> let's live a good life, and let's live the best life we can, and let's upgrade what we can upgrade, and do what we can do. We are self-exalters. I know I go back to Ephesians a lot, but this is what Ephesians 2 means when it says, you were dead in trespasses and sins following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you were dead in the lusts and the passions, the passions of your flesh, which the sons of disobedience now walk in. It's just a very self-oriented view of life. This is Satan's, this angel's rebellion. Um, a fourth note. Uh, so Satan, the name, the accuser. Second, a created angel. Third, existed to glorify God. Fourth, angels in general, when we, the angels that we're talking about, you know, supernatural, I guess that's what I'm trying to get. Angels, from our perception, are supernatural beings. Um, what do I mean by the word supernatural? I don't mean all-powerful, but what I mean is they can do things that exceed the boundaries and the laws of nature as we know them. Um, gravity applies to me, <laughs> okay? The law of matter applies to me. In other words, I, I cannot appear one place and then not appear in that same place. Uh, I, you know, I, I have natural laws, um, many of which we've discovered in our universe that apply to me. And, and angels um, are spiritual beings. They are supernatural in the sense that the natural laws that applies to flesh and bone and matter that we can observe, they don't apply the same way to God. They don't apply the same way to angels. That's what we mean when we talk about their physical properties as being spiritual beings because they are not restricted by the laws of nature to the same extent that we are. Um, I think that um, um, many of the ancient mythologies um, that uh, saw human-like beings, uh, I think many of them are derived from uh, supernatural experiences with, uh, with uh, angels or angelic-like beings. Um, 
they can seem divine. Angels can seem divine. Um, what else would you think about someone who did something that you knew wasn't possible? <laughs> you would think that there was some divinity at work. Angels can seem divine. And in fact, we see in the scriptures that Satan seeks to be worshipped as a god. His particular self-exaltation was not buying a new watch or owning a nicer house. His particular self-exaltation, and these, this is his language, I will be like the Most High. Well, the Most High is worshipped, and Satan of all people, a created angel created to glorify and worship God, to serve Him, he knew that, and he seeks worship. Now, how do I know he seeks worship? Think to the temptation of Jesus. And Jesus goes out in the wilderness for 40 days while Satan tempts him. If you will fall down and worship me, I will give you as far as you can see. You can be a ruler on the earth. Jesus, I mean, Jesus came to be king of kings and lord of lords. Something in that would have appealed to any human flesh. You don't have to go to a cross. There's another way which you can be king of kings and lord of lords. I'll give all of this to you to rule if you'll worship me. So angels are supernatural and can seem divine. Um, I think when you think of Satan's name as the accuser, I can only think of a handful of reasons why anyone would accuse someone else, why that would be a characteristic of Satan. Um, one reason why someone would accuse someone else is to justify oneself. Um, uh, when, when we accuse someone else of something, one of the reasons we might do that is to make make ourselves feel a little bit more righteous, a little, a, little, a, little, a, little, a little bit less guilty. I don't know if you've ever had parents out there, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with your kids and you tell them why they shouldn't do something and then they point at something that you've done and say, but you do this, or they point to something their brother or sister has done, and well, but she did this, or a friend, a friend did this, and one of the reasons why we are quick to accuse others of sins is to justify ourselves. I think there's a sense of this in Satan's life that's recognizable in the first chapter of Job. I mean, because uh, on an appointed day, the angels of God are gathering in heaven, and Satan is there also, and uh, God uh, points to, to, to Job, and it's almost like rubbing this into Satan's face. Have you considered my servant Job, who's upright and, and worthy in all his ways? He's a righteous man in all his ways. And he's saying this to Satan, who has rebelled against God, and who is the one condemned among the angels of God. And what does Satan say? He only does that because of this. You take away his protection. and You see a sense of the, the accusation of Job's character, in a, at least when I read it, in a, a justification of, of Lucifer. Another reason why you might accuse someone is to mock the person who made the rules. Um, in other words, some accusations are made to point out the ridiculousness of the rule in the first place. You know, you, you have a rule, you know, you, you play the game of golf and there's a rule that, you know, if the ball moves and settles in a different place, you got to take a penalty and and it's like, that's a dumb rule, you know, because sometimes the ball moves and, and, and you, you know, you, you can't even perceive it with the human eye. They get it with these high resolution cameras and then they call, gave me a penalty stroke after the round. This is a real life, these are real life PGA tour scenarios here. That's a dumb rule. One of the reasons you might accuse people, well, so-and-so did this and he didn't get a penalty and so-and-so did this and he didn't get a penalty. Or if I do this, I don't get a penalty. One of the reasons why, why you might make accusations 
is to mock the lawgiver. And I think you see this in Satan's character in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, when, when Satan uh, speaks to Eve and she says, let me tell you the real reason why you can't eat of that. Because when you eat of it, it's not that you'll, it's not that you'll die. The real reason is when you eat of it, uh, you will become like God. In other words, this rule is not as it seems. This rule that God has given you not to partake of this is really a condemnation of the lawgiver. And then a third reason why you might accuse is because you enjoy the condemnation of others. You enjoy the downfall of others. And I think there's a sense of this in Satan as well in the Bible. In 1 Peter 5.8 when Satan is described as, as a roaring lion roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. That idea of devouring, he, he enjoys the downfall. Maybe not the material downfall, the spiritual downfall of others. He revels in the sin and the condemnation of others because he himself is condemned. This is our enemy. And I have good news for you. Our God is creator and king. He is no created being. Um, this is why Jesus Christ did not bend the knee to Satan. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he has conquered and defeated death and Satan forever. There is no suffering that Satan can perform on my life. There is no persecution. There are no chains that can keep me from resurrecting to power with the Lord Jesus Christ and ruling and reigning with Him forever. So there is good news. We serve a creator and not a created being. We serve a victor and not one who is being defeated. For this, this is 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, that's a, that's a cool verse. I'll read it to you again. For this light, momentary affliction. That's Paul's description of being a prisoner of Rome and headed towards a condemnation of death. That's him after being scourged, stoned, left for dead. This light, Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And then here's the, the part that should be underlined. Beyond all comparison. <laughs> That's a man who has faith in his creator. That's a man who knows that he's at war and he knows which side he's on. So we have an enemy that will mean suffering that will mean difficulty. Jesus in John 16, tells us, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. <laughs> um, this is the song, Victory in Jesus. But let's not be mistaken. If you are going to share the gospel and be a gospel person, you're going to suffer. I don't know what that'll look like for you. Um, some men and women have been beaten and killed. Some mocked and ridiculed. Some railroaded. Some despised. Some put through relational trauma. Some have lost possession. But you will suffer. 
Second thing we see, the reason and prayer part in this passage. I have you in my heart and as much as both in my chains, the suffering, and in the defense of the gospel, the defense of the gospel. Um, turn with me uh, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I just want to read a handful of verses to you. I, I won't do much exposition here. I just read because if you pay attention, the passage says it. Just listen. Why do we have to make the gospel seem reasonable? Here it is. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, but not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. In other words, we're not trying to make... We know that what we say is not reasonable, you know, in the eyes of the world. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's a bold statement, isn't it? In other words, if I'm going to plead with you to be saved, I know that my pleading is not going to appeal to your desire to have success and money and prosperity right now. I know that. The rulers of this age know that. But if they had understood the glory of God in eternity, they would not have crucified the King, the Lord of that glory. Verse 9, But as it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Just be clear about this. Whatever you imagine heaven to be, whatever you imagine your heavenly reward to be like, whatever you imagine life with the Almighty Creator God who loves you as a son or a daughter, whatever you imagine that to be like is not enough. This is, again, the other verse. Beyond comparison. Verse 10, But God has revealed them this wisdom, this gospel to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit teaches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of a man which is in him? I can't look into your eyes and know what's going on in your head. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we've received, uh, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may know the things that have been freely given to us. This means in the gospel, you are speaking you are speaking to a spiritual wisdom. When you share the gospel, Brian goes to work and shares the gospel. He is speaking towards a spiritual wisdom that the natural man will not find appealing. So how is he to succeed? You understand? This is the worst sales job in the world. You're telling me I have to go sell a product and you're telling me at the beginning, nobody is going to want to buy this. How am I going to make a living doing that? Right? And that is what it's saying. We are speaking to spiritual things which in worldly wisdom will not appeal. And that's true, isn't it? How many of you have, how many of you have ever shared the gospel? And as good as you try to make it sound, there, there's, the fish are not biting. <laughs> right? Okay. So what, what do we need? We need help. <laughs> I, can't, you know, I cannot make this sound appealing to the... The, 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 a, a normal, you know, earthly-minded guy. I need help. Praise God. 
Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away because when I go away, I I will send a helper to you. This helper is the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, God's Spirit must work in the heart of the person that you are saying this defense, this reasonable. When you're telling someone, look, here's what I believe, and this is reasonable, and you're, you're making an appeal on heavenly wisdom, on the reality of death, on the, the nature of God in heaven. You're making a spiritual appeal to an earthly person. You need spiritual help, and this is what the Holy Spirit does. There is no salvation without the Spirit of God working. There is none. In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God comes. When the Holy Spirit of God comes upon people, Peter stands up and he presents the gospel as reasonable as he can to a huge number of people. But it's the Spirit of God who showed up on the day of Pentecost that gets the credit for thousands of people being saved that day. Peter stands up the the day before and tries to make that same appeal. Crickets. Not interested. (laughs) But the Spirit of God working in the life of worldly people brings spiritual light. It'll be the same with you, which I'll give you just two comments on. Number one, if you think that you can be effective sharing the gospel when spiritually you are not honoring God with your life, you're probably going to find that difficult. Now, God might still save through the gospel proclamation, but you need to understand you need help in sharing the gospel. You need help. Most of us are humble enough to acknowledge it. You're darn right I need help. I don't know what to say when I share the gospel. I just mumble all over myself. You need help. You need God's Spirit working. Um, and the, the second thing that I'll say to this is there's a great freedom about this. My very first time that I went to a Together for the Gospel conference, I heard John MacArthur preach, and it's a sermon that we later uh, played on the screen that doesn't exist in front of... Uh, in front of uh, many of you who were here at the time, and it was called The Theology of Sleep, and it's from, it's from Mark. It's from uh, Mark chapter 4. It's only four verses. I'd encourage you to read these four verses this afternoon. Mark 4, 26 through 29. Now, when you turn to Mark 4, you'll see the parable of the sower. You know that one. You, you probably know that one. This is after that. And you know what it says? It says that, you know, a farmer goes out and he scatters seed... And yeah, that's what farmers do. And then he goes into his house and he goes to sleep and he hopes that it grows. <laughs> and he can't make it grow. And going out and staring at it is not going to make it grow. And going out and messing with the dirt at that point isn't going to make it grow. He throws the seed out and then he waits and he hopes and he prays. Because God is the one who gives the increase. <laughs> God, you know, God is the one who gives the increase here. And it's the same when sharing the gospel. You are not responsible for saying the magic words any more than a farmer is responsible for sowing the magic seed, for saying the right incantations over it so that it shoots up out of the ground. You're not responsible. Your job is to share the gospel in a reasonable way. Be clear about it. Be reasonable about it. Don't pull your punches because you're afraid, oh, I might have suffering here. I might hurt someone's feelings. They may not like me. They may not like what I say. No, share the gospel for what it is. Be as reasonable as you can. Be brave when you do it. And then, brothers and sisters, 
go home with a smile on your face saying, hey, I'm a servant of God and I did what I was supposed to do. I'll pray and the rest is in the Lord's hands. <laughs> if that person never gets saved, if that person never responses, never responds, it's not my fault. I didn't damn their soul to hell. Be free in this. You need a helper who must be working. And God will be faithful to work. He'll be faithful to work. And the last bit I'll use is just a challenge because I know this has not been short like I promised. But in, Paul mentions here in verse 7 the confirmation of the gospel. And this is you or the Philippians or Paul as the living evidence that God does work in the lives of people. Um, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are stories of Jesus' life. They, they are filled with testimony of how people meeting Jesus changed them. Changed them. The woman at the well, Zacchaeus, the disciples, a centurion, when the Spirit of God brings us into a right relationship with God, the life that follows is different. It is evidence. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Your life should be a powerful confirmation of the evidence of the reasonable nature of the gospel message that you are sharing. You know, um, some of you might say, oh, I don't like to talk about myself. It's not a bad characteristic, you know. <laughs> That's not bad. But when it comes to the gospel, you should talk about yourself. And what you should say is, the Lord Jesus has saved me from my sin. This is who Zacchaeus was, and this is who Zacchaeus is. This is who the woman at the well was. This is who the woman at the well is. This is who Reggie was. This is who Reggie is. And this is because of God and what I'm sharing with you. And you don't know what God can do with your life. Some of you out there are not saved. You're not believers. You've not trusted the Lord Jesus. You have not been baptized expressing your faith in Jesus. And all you know about yourself is what you are. And you have no idea what you could be. You don't know. If you knew me and who I was, if you knew the man that I was, how selfish, how self-centered, how personally ambitious, how lustful and prideful, how cruel I could be to get my way, how manipulative... If you knew the man that I was, you would not recognize him now as the man that I am, the flawed man that I am, but the man that I am. Some of you only know the person that you are, and you can't imagine being anyone else. But if you trust Jesus for salvation, God will work in your life. And all around you this morning are men and women who are evidence of that. Evidence of that. And if you like I said earlier in the VBS example. Look around at the people of God and recognize sinners, sinners, but sinners who have been saved and God is at work in their life, they are not 
They're not who they used to be. That should be powerful evidence to you of a confirmed faith, the confirmation of the gospel. Uh, pray with me now. And as you bow your head, I would like to invite those of you who are not Christians in this moment of prayer with God to open up with honesty the condition of your soul before the Lord. I would like to invite you to acknowledge what the rest of us already know and what God already knows. That you are a sinner and that you have done wrong and that you continue to do wrong. That if you stood before the Lord today, you would meet Him as a criminal before a judge. And in your acknowledgement of that before God, if you believe that He has given His only Son to die a criminal's death so that your sin can be forgiven, then I want to invite you to express faith in Jesus Christ, your belief in Jesus, to your Heavenly Father, to God. And I don't mean faith that Jesus walked on water. I don't mean faith that Jesus turned water into wine. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, so that God could save you from eternal hell and bring you into eternal life, you may be saved. The door is wide open to you and your relationship with God will transform. You will no longer be a criminal before an almighty judge. You will be a son or a daughter before a loving father. You will have an advocate in the person of Jesus Christ. Someone who claims you before God. And you'll have eternal life and much more. If you are ready, I'd ask you to surrender your life to God by expressing faith in Jesus Christ. Acknowledging your sin and committing yourself to follow Him. I want to give you a moment to do that. Father, there are no magic words when we approach you in prayer. Only human words. But you know the heart of the people here. Each heart individually. Each mind individually. Father, I ask that you will save those who are struggling with the reality of sin and the conviction of who Jesus is. That you'll take their life and claim it for yourself. Transform it. Adopt them into your family and become to them a father. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ability to give and to worship. Help us to honor you with what we do. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.